Hey, everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is EQUITY, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined by two of my absolute favorites. I have Natasha Mascarenas here. How are you doing? Doing good. I think last week I was a 3 out of 10 and I'm a 6 out of 10 this week. That's 100% week-over-week growth. That means she's actually a YC startup. Danny, you're also (laughs) here. Danny, how are you doing? I'm cranky. Yes. If you don't get to hear the pre-show, our dear friends who are listening to this, but the pre-show is pretty much just Danny complaining for 20 minutes. I, 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 have got, I have gotten five emails about holiday gift guides, and it's not even November. We are so far away from the holidays, my friends. We don't even know if the holidays are going to come this year. <laughs> yeah, they're not. Also, it's not even Halloween yet as we record this. So everyone breathe, breathe. But the good news is, if you are tired of hearing about the election, the pandemic, and the recession, and every other bad thing that's out there, we have a pretty good show for you today. And we're going to wrap it up with some new VC funding, some startup rounds. We have a big conversation about next-gen startups. Up top, we're going to talk a little bit about public markets and antitrust really quickly, but lots of goodies in here if you are into startups. So with that in mind, Danny and Natasha, did you guys see what happened to the markets? I think it was on, on Wednesday when they just dropped like three, three and a half points in a single day. It was crazy to see. The markets are cranky. It's as if the holidays aren't coming around this year. <laughs> Maybe this was the coal in our stocking. Anyways, in case you weren't paying attention, there was an enormous kind of shudder that went through the public markets. SaaS companies took a hit. Cloud stocks took a hit. Big tech took a hit. It really set a lot of people back on their haunches. Curious what this means in the middle of this earnings season. On that note, we are going to be having a special edition of Equity coming out on Saturday, focused on this week's earnings reports. So we're not going to get into those today. But it's one of those moments when the public markets become so turbulent that it does kind of cross over into our world. And then the other news out this week was the big congressional hearings about Section 230 in theory. Natasha, you watched some of this kind of big tech versus Congress stuff. What'd you think? It was a pretty inconsequential hearing. I only tuned in for, I think, 15 to 20 minutes, so not much. But I think people took the general stance. Uh, We heard from Jack Dorsey of Twitter, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and Sundar Pichai of Google. Out of note of that, they kept pronouncing Sundar's name wrong, which I think is horrible and so stupid. But away from that, they kind of all made the arguments you expected them to. Yeah, to give you an idea of how bad the hearing was overall, we were going to do a video roundup with a couple of our reporters on the policy beat, and I was going to host it. I was pretty excited about it because I love doing that kind of just like hosting people talking about stuff. And uh, nothing really happened in the hearing. So we decided to just kill the videos. That's why you haven't seen it, because it doesn't <laughs> exist. In short, the right-leaning half of the American, you know, I guess GOP, if you will, were arguing that there's too much censorship on social media, and the American left side of the Senate decided that there's too little, and nothing really happened. But the broader political discussion matters a lot, because we've been talking about some antitrust stuff. And this has come up, Danny, in the Visa Plaid deal, which was announced early in 2020. And we all thought it was kind of a done deal, but instead is under fire. So what's going on there? So over the last couple of decades, antitrust has not been 
a huge topic of conversation. I mean, the last major tech deal that came under excruciating antitrust was actually Microsoft, right? And that was focused on just the scale of Microsoft and its dominance in browsers and leveraging its Windows operating system dominant position to sort of get Internet Explorer to be the dominant browser. It wasn't actually related to an acquisition. And, and outside of AT&T and DirecTV in recent years, Qualcomm, NXP, and the processor space, we haven't seen a lot of big kind of antitrust news in tech. But now it's, the bid is flipping. And, and regardless of sort of the election next week, I think we're going to continue to see this. So this week, the Wall Street Journal reported that Visa's planned $5.3 billion acquisition of Plaid, the API for financial data, that was a YC grad and is sort of a major notable in the, in the fintech space, is under antitrust scrutiny at the Justice Department. And that's actually matching what we're hearing about other deals that have been announced in the last couple of year, uh, months. Intuit is buying Credit Karma for $7 billion. That, according to ProPublica, back in August, is under antitrust scrutiny. Finicity, which is being acquired by MasterCard, is also under antitrust scrutiny. And then, you know, one of the big blockbuster deals of the last couple of weeks, NVIDIA Arm, $40 billion dollars is under scrutiny in four separate jurisdictions, the US, Damn. the UK, the European Union, and China. All of a sudden, you know, we, we just have never really focused on the fact that we assume companies get bought when they announce that they're going to get bought. We, we've never seen a lot of these get literally stopped by the regulators, but I think right. the bit is flipping. And nowadays, when you hear these big announcements in the news, you really have to ask in the back of your head, like, is this even going to happen? Like, now right. it's just more of an intention rather than a fait accompli. And, you know, big deals are great for late stage investors and public companies. But I'm curious, what does this mean for the startup world? Like, you know, if these deals get harder to do, does that limit the overall supply of M&A deal making? And could that impact the value of startups in general? Well, certainly. I mean, I th you know, when you think about the kinds of companies that can actually do the large purchase, you know, acquisitions, the, the kinds of purchases with the big, big multi-billion dollar valuations, there aren't that many companies, right? In the ch chip space, you have Intel and NVIDIA. In, in enterprise, you have companies like Palo Alto Network, Cisco, a few others, Microsoft. And then obviously in consumer, you have a couple of companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google who really have pocketbooks to actually buy these companies. If they're not able to actually consummate those transactions, if they're not able to get through antitrust scrutiny, there are no acquirers. I mean, there's not a, a whole group of like, let's call middle class tech stocks that have major budgets and wallets to go out and say, hey, we're going to go spend four billion dollars of our five billion dollars on an acquisition they just don't have the ability to do that it's going to be an 800 million dollar acquisition and so i think one of the big questions if you think about the rise of SPACs, the number of ipos we're seeing in the last couple of months you know do, do startups increasingly have to go back towards the public markets rather than acquisitions and the kind of clean exits we've seen in the last couple of years in order to kind of get the big values that they're worth it's funny i think plaid is often compared to twilio which is another api company that helps players do business and Twilio went the public route and Twilio must be smirking right now, not to put put something on them. But I totally agree, Danny, that, you know, now the public route seems even more enticing. What I'm seeing with all these news items stacking together is what a wake up call to startups in regulatory heavy industries to not necessarily bet on getting acquired for these for these big prices before maybe the Intuit buy or the Plaid buy was inspiration. And now it's kind of like a warning call. I was talking to the CEO of Hippo yesterday, Asif Wand. He's a, a really funny guy. And I was talking to him because, you know, Root went public this week. And so I've been tracking the InsureTech liquidity space. And we were riffing again about this idea that we've seen a lot more kind of heady valuations in the public market versus the private market. And so actually, you know, it used to be the old days that unicorns were overpriced and stocks were conservative. And now stocks are overpriced and, and kind of private valuations can be conservative in some cases. And we were just talking about the, the weird gap and what that means for insurtech and blah, blah, blah. But he was like, look, the, the huge differential now between public optimism and private pessimism 
is being bridged by SPACs. Like they have kind of come in to fill that gap and get more companies from the conservative side of the valuation pond over to the, the more enthusiastic side. And so, you know, I want to make fun of SPACs like, like we do almost week by week on the show. But I, I wonder if acquisitions do, in fact, dry up because of antitrust fears. SPACs will have kind of a second wind, actually a real use as opposed to what they currently are, which appears to be you know, predatory vultures circling middle tier unicorns. You know, back to Natasha's point, you know, Twilio is actually a perfect example of the kind of middle class startup acquisition you're going to see, which is they bought Segment for $1.1 billion. And, you know, that's sort of what you can expect from that world of people. Like most of these companies cannot buy things above 1.1, 1.5 billion bucks. They just don't have the cash and our equivalents to be able to do it or the stock, quite frankly. Second, I was talking to an investor this week, an enterprise investor who was telling me that Snowflake was one of the major exits this year, huge valuation multiple on its revenues, something like 60, 70 X. Those multiples have already trickled down, according to this investor, down to the series B. Wow. Uh, and he, he's like, there's already, you know, once you get post series A, like a year, people are already comparing themselves to Snowflake. And getting those multiple valuations um, all the way through. So it's amazing to see how quickly there's like synchronicity between the private markets and how aggressive the public markets are being. You know, VCs are bidding up those prices based on the valuations they're seeing on the public markets. The connection seems to be getting faster, Danny. And I think as there's more linkage between the public and private markets via direct listings and SPACs, the pricing mechanism should be quicker. Exactly. And, and the third thing, which I can't talk a lot about, but there is a next generation SPAC, which also has a fun acronym that I was just learning about this week, and we'll have okay. more about that in the coming weeks. What's the acronym? I think it's SAIL. I was going to look it up. I was going to guess HAGS. <laughs> you were going to guess HAGS. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just going to make a small joke, but honest question too is like, what happens next for Plaid Intuit if this falls through? I wonder if the DOJ investigation is kind of the new version of, we're going to pretend to go public so we actually get acquired and actually get some more attention. Well, I think certainly, you know, one of the big questions is, is who wins the election? You know, the DOJ is stocked with political appointees. And so the antitrust division, you know, in many ways, obviously has rules. It's built around laws and, and a lot of precedent. But there's a lot of flexibility for the people who run the antitrust division to determine how aggressively they go after certain companies versus others. So I think the big question is not only who wins, you know, if, if Trump wins, a lot of folks have already declared they're going to leave the administration. So you'll see a turnover there. So there's going to be a whole new cast of characters. If Biden wins, we don't know how Biden is going to approach tech. In one way, he's been very militantly opposed to tech, doing a fundraiser just this past week with Elizabeth Warren. At the same time, he's taken hundreds of millions of dollars from the tech industry from Silicon Valley. So it remains completely ambiguous to me how he would approach antitrust. I want to go back to the point about middle-class deal sizes. I pulled up some data for us. I talked to Fastly yesterday and their CEO, Joshua, after their earnings report, and they are kind of wrapping up a deal to buy signal sciences. Just to kind of make Danny's point for me about how much you can buy if you're of a certain size. Fastly is currently worth about $7.3 billion, according to Google Finance. And they're buying signal sciences for $775 million in cash. Now, a big deal, a legitimate amount of money. That's an enormous transaction. It's not $5.3 billion. And right. so it does really constrain, I think, the size of deals. And so I don't know. I, th I think acquisitions were the way out when there are no IPOs. Now there are IPOs and acquisitions are in trouble. It's funny how fast the world changes. But on the subject of change and the future, we want to talk today on the show about some optimistic stuff. You know, there's often a lot of stuff in tech to kind of be, be a little pissy about, to be a little annoyed with. But fundamentally, the whole TechCrunch ethos is that startups are cool. And I think we all find, generally speaking, innovation to be neat. And so we want to talk about kind of what's coming up next. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is founders raising money even earlier, even when they still have a job. Natasha, you've been writing about this, and I'm curious if you can tell us what you have found. 
Yeah, I think the whole concept of what a founder has to be before they raise venture capital money has been changing rapidly for years. And so we see, you know, more informal raises and raises when you're still at Stripe or Google for your side gig. We see angels sliding into your DMs earlier than you even know you had a company you wanted to launch. Um, I was just talking to the folks over at Unusual Ventures, and they were saying about half of their founders that they back aren't full time yet. Now, it's not they're giving them millions. They're giving them small checks. And this happens all the time. But I do think it was an interesting stat to know how early VC is starting to pay attention to the next innovators and the affirmation a check gives. It's not everything, but it's an affirmation. We're going to be seeing even more big bets coming down the pipeline soon. I think one of the biggest challenges in the venture capital ecosystem is you still have this like leap of faith problem for most founders, right? They have to leave their companies, give up healthcare. If you're in the United States, they have to give up their salary, give up the stability of their jobs to go and build something, find an idea, you know, kind of lock it in. That can take a couple of months, right? And and most people pay it out of pocket. They just kind of go. I think VCs are increasingly seeing that as just a, a kind of useless friction point. I think in the past, it was always like, hey, that's a proof point that this person's really committed to doing an idea. And I think given just how competitive these markets are, how few founders there are, a lot of folks went back into industry because of COVID and sort of the economic malaise of this year. The VCs are like, let's just make the road easier. Like they'll get up to it. Like anyone who finds success building a startup isn't just going to quit after a year or two and be like, well, I, you know, quintupled the value of my company. I'm done now. Ha ha. And so I think VCs are just more comfortable in saying, hey, if we can just guide that path easier, if we can reduce the friction points to starting a company, why don't we go do that? You know, another example of someone doing that is Contrary Capital created Contrary Talent, which is kind of their arm that they're reserving money on to invest in the the top PM at, a, at big companies, the top engineer, top marketing professionals. And when I talked to Eric, who leads Contrary, he was saying that it's it's fine if, you know, we're not expecting Facebooks to be falling out of trees is how he put it. Um, and so I thought that was perfectly a perfect, you know, human way to put it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That, that was also another example that happened in the beginning of this pandemic of his way of trying to get part of this inertia, Alex. You know, you know, I was I wanted to make fun of this because I, I was taught the way Danny was taught was that, you know, you have to quit your job to show your real dedication to this concept that you're going to fight for and bleed for and make the startup win no matter what. Grit. Otherwise, I'm not going to get yeah, grit, hustle. Ugh. But in reality, every VC firm's going earlier stage, right? Everyone's trying to get optionality on hot deals. So why is it a surprise that we're seeing earlier stage VCs go even earlier? I mean, I, I guess thematically it matches what we're seeing across the VC spectrum. And it sounds a little whimsical to me, but with this much capital around, with everyone desperate for outsized returns to, so they can raise another fund and keep not working, I, I suppose <laughs> it's pretty valid. So, all right, I, I can see this. I, I don't think it's going to last when capital is less ample. I think this is a, a result of the zero interest rate policy that has flooded the world with low yield money. But let's move on and talk about what may be built. Our own Danny Crichton has written a series of pieces over on TechRunch.com looking at 2020, the decade, and what could be built, and also kind of the five startup theses that will transform our next 10 years. So Danny, talk us through the future so we can all know what's coming up. Yeah. So I mean, over the last two weeks, I've been trying to do a news blackout. Let's call it a news blackout of like the kind of news that dominates the headlines these days, because I think we've been so focused on quote 2020 that we've not actually taken a wider look at 2020s. Last year, we obviously did all this like decade roundup stuff. Like, you know, what happened in the 2010s? You know, what are the highs and the lows? And then, you know, those are supposed to be complemented with the prospective pieces, the pieces that are like, here's what's going to come in the next decade. Here's all the opportunities, all the new innovations. And then COVID-19 hit, you know, and then we have the American presidential election, a bunch of other events happened this year. And, and so we kind of just got really short term thinking. And so one of my inspirations for the next couple of months is to say, well, what really is this decade about to become? So 
I, I was focused on a couple of spaces. I, I identified, I call them clusters or areas. They're, they're meant to be vague. They're not meant to be like extraordinarily defined because these are new spaces and we're still learning a lot of what's going on. But I focused in on, on five, which I termed, you know, quote unquote, wellness, climate, data society, creativity, and fundamentals. And Danny, each one of these had a question associated with it. So can you kind of walk us through what the, the core question for each one was? Yeah. So like in wellness, it's sort of, you know, how do we feel in, in climate? How does the planet feel and how do we, you know, protect the planet going forward? In data society, it's about how we think. How do we connect with, with data, with statistics, with understanding what the world is actually meaning? With creativity, it's about how we make. How do we build new things? How do we empower creators to do great work, both financially as well as, you know, with the actual authoring tools to do interesting and unique work? And then fundamentals is about, you know, how do we create new knowledge? So, so how do we build fundamental science? How do we build up our research productivity? Because a lot of the, the startups we see today were built on technology and, and ideas built in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. You know, the internet, GPS, email, all kinds of different technologies built in the 50s and 60s. And I, I think we've been sort of under-investing in a lot of that basic science research over the last two or three decades. Is that a place where startups fit in? Do you think, or is that a place where like, you know, government sponsored basic research fits in? Because we all know Microsoft, for example, has a basic research group, but not every company can afford to spend a lot of money on that sort of thing, Danny. So, you know, is this really a startup story or is this more of a, you know, U.S. industry story? Well, I think it's interconnected, right? Which is, I think there's a ton of opportunity for startups. Startups can do all kinds of things to make basic science research better, to make creativity better, to empower people around climate. But I also think that one of the big challenges over the next 20, 10, 20 years in, in Silicon Valley and the general tech ethos is not enough to just build an app. It's not enough to just build a SaaS tool. You're going to have to actually connect with users, with communities, with regulations, with laws in order to actually fix a lot of these huge problems. I mean, you know, take the energy markets or, or fixing climate. Yes, there are definitely going to be point solutions. There's going to be technologies that empower it. Solar panels are cheaper than ever, and that's because of a lot of technology innovation. But at the same time, you still have to get those things installed. Utilities are regulated. In fact, in most states, uh, you know, the Public Utilities Commission controls the profitability of a lot of energy companies. So we may have to reinvent the way we regulate energy, the way we use titles and certificates and all the bureaucracy tools to create new models of, of the economy. So to, to me, it's like really inspirational because to, I think we're ending the kind of mobile class cloud SaaS world of the last 10, 15 years. We've reaped and extracted a lot of value out of that. And so now we have to create new vistas. I like vistas, uh, <laughs> new vistas, new opportunities, new markets where people haven't tread before. Yeah, Danny, from your piece, like the big question and I guess like point of hope that I was left with that I think, you know, the future YC startup classes should all really internalize is like, how do we start allowing ourselves to dream and not just bundle and unbundle? I was talking to an investor earlier this week, and she was saying that so much of EdTech feels like it's just tinkering on the edges. It's the master class of X. Peloton of X. And while those are easy themes to say and easy themes to write about, I'm yet to see a lot of companies be too early for me to get. And I want to be shocked. And I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not a founder. So I'm not going to pretend like I know what that answer is. But I think that was kind of like the area I hope we get to is that the YC classes aren't just X for X anymore. I think the YC though is designed to make quick small companies that fit general themes and patterns that people are looking at. And then from there, they can evolve into much larger things, which is, you know, a problem and a solution to the thing about, you know, how do startups take on basic research or whatever? Often you don't take on the whole problem at once. You take on a piece of it and you begin to grow and build from there. Like Google didn't set out to build Alphabet when it kicked off. It started off to build a slightly better search engine. I don't know. I'm generically very optimistic about startups in the next 10 years. I think there's more in cloud and SaaS than Danny is uh, 
is alive. There's probably one or two more Vistas or XPs in there somewhere. Um, but uh, sorry, Windows joke. Could not help myself. Uh, but <laughs> but I do I do agree that the most exciting stuff does seem to be in a different part of of the startup world. And I hope that the money people will fund stuff that's a bit out of the norm because not everything has to be SaaS. Well, the good news is I think uh, we have a bunch of new funds that came out this week. And one of the amazing things about that is uh, a lot of them actually do have these sorts of theses at their heart. So, I mean, the first one I, I, we were talking about was IndieBio, which Natasha, I think you talked to them recently. Yeah. So IndieBio is an accelerator that's powered by SOSV, SOSV, which is a VC firm. And I don't know if I pronounced that right. Is it pronounced SOVS? I was like, is no, it pronounced no, no, no. SOVS? No, I didn't, that, don't think that's... <laughs> that's somehow worse than SOSV, which is already bad. I was Let's like, just keep... sound right. We're not going to cut this. We're going to keep this in. Let's keep going. Okay. Anyways, so this accelerator works on biotech companies, which I'll just, I'll be the first to admit that I don't cover biotech, but I did care about what these companies, which have kind of all received 250K in capital are working on. And so we saw them in invest in about 20 companies. I'll give a shout out to three of them. There's Microgenesis, which helps women who struggle with infertility get pregnant. A couple actually in the batch that focus on fertility and focus on treatments that even people who have gone through IVF cannot and can't conceive are able to still get pregnant, which I think is amazing. There's Allied Microbiota, which uses natural microbes to eliminate toxic waste. They kind of phrase it as pollution is your lunch. And so I thought that was pretty cute. <laughs> I like, I like uh, that a lot. Yeah. And then there's Spintex, which it's, it's basically trying to recreate what spiders do when they create silk to really create this indestructible material after. And so these are things that I do not see often in my inbox. And so I have to give a shout out to this accelerator. I want to talk about SOSV just for a small second, because I learned this a couple months ago. They run a number of different accelerators. They call themselves the Accelerator VC. They also have FoodX, Mox, which is focused on mobile only. So they do kind of these themed accelerators as a firm. It's almost like a micro like thematic tech stars to some degree. Is that, is that fair? I think it's a cool model anyway. So I, I've heard of them. And so it was cool to see IndieBio crop up here. Danny, have you, have you ever worked with SOSV back in your VC days? Oh, I did not. But we, we, we were focused on SaaS. So there you so, go. I mean, anything that sounds interesting is not something we would necessarily invest in. <laughs> of course, we made money. I mean, that, that that's always the compromise. You know, the question is, is you know, can you make money doing spider silk? I mean, it's it, 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 huge technical risk. And I think that's the, the argument for a lot of these. I'm, I'm skipping, Alex, your section for a second. To talk fine. about another fund in the same category, which is the Engine, which is MIT affiliated and actually pulled in Harvard for its second fund. But they raised $230 million this week for basically what they call tough tech, which is their dub of like deep tech or hard tech. But what was amazing about the engine is, you know, they're focused on like next generation building materials, like the future of cement, the future of how to construct actual buildings. We talked about WoHo, I think last week, but they funded that a Boston-based company. They have companies that are doing, you know, metal printing, that are doing, mm. you know, the next generation biotech and all the kind of bioinformatics stuff. So, so again, like, you know, whether it's SOSV, which has sort of had this pension, particularly the seed stage around technical risk startups, whether it's the engine, we're seeing just so many of these funds come together to say, hey, you know, what's on the other horizon over here? What are some of the deeper, harder problems that could be solved that, look, if we were able to fix the technical risk, you know, if we can, we can do that, there's a huge market on the other side, a huge ocean to kind of take advantage of. It's really, really encouraging. And you know what I learned about cement, Denny, recently in a post, uh, I learned that cement's very environmentally uh, disastrous. It's very bad for the, uh, the planet. You know where I learned that from? It was you in your piece. That was a great piece. That was a guardian piece, but it's been uh, circulated a while. But cement comes from sand. And of course, you need really specific high quality sand, uh, which means you have to destroy beaches, rivers, effluvian outflows from all kinds of different water sources in order to get cement. And uh, we, I think he used more cement last year than ever in uh, like human history. 
Yeah, look up sand. Sand theft is also a problem, uh, given the <laughs> enormous demand for sand in cement. There, there's a lot of funny mechanics inside the uh, construction world. Um, can I talk about tech stars now? You can. <laughs> okay, so trying to keep tabs on young startups, and so I went through a bunch of the tech stars October demo day classes. Uh, one from LA, one from New York City, one from Atlanta, and one sponsored by Western Union, which is that thing you don't use but you see stores occasionally as you drive by. So I picked a couple of favorites from this just because I wanted to share some cool companies. One that I really loved was called OnePipe. It's kind of like a, a meta fintech API that allows for information to flow between banks and, and applications. It felt like a, like, a, like almost like a broader plaid. Now, I'm not a developer, so I couldn't really go into the docs and really poke around to see how, how cool it is and how powerful it is. But the idea was really, really neat. I also like Treasure, which was a neobank aimed at helping kids learn about money, allowances, savings, chores, all that stuff. I think financial literacy in America is abysmal. And so anything we can do to increase that from an early age in children seems really, really smart. And then I know you guys aren't big esports fans, but I am. And so it's a company called Stats Helix that does software that does kind of like in-game display stats. So if you're watching a game, you can learn a lot more about what's going on and also kind of some post-game highlight stuff. So they make software for esports. And I read about them right after I finished watching a big chunk of League of Legends from the World Tournaments going on right now. And I was like, yes, this is exactly what I love. So anyways, a lot of diversity in the companies, a lot of different types of products and projects going on. So an encouraging way to spend a morning just going through all those pitches and seeing what was going on. But let's move on to Impact America Fund, which is $55 million. Yeah. So Keisha Cash, who is one of the few black female GPs in venture capital, has closed a 55 million fund before they had a 10 million one for their first fund. And this is their second. It actually probably is one of the largest funds ever raised by a black female GP. So it's definitely making history in that way. But the fund isn't isn't focused on funding diverse founders solely. She said that it's an admirable focus, but it's not their focus. Their focus instead is looking at startups that are tackling inequities in a different way, whether it's low income populations, broader demographics than maybe the tools that are built for the 1%. The first few companies that she built give me a lot of promise and excitement. And so I'll definitely be keeping up with her. It was our first time chatting. And so hopefully not the last. No. And I wonder how big her third fund will be. If she went from 10 to 55, maybe it'll be like, you know, 250 for fund three. Totally. Shall we talk about some startups before we go? Yes. I think there's some pretty, there's some pretty big rounds. Oh, Natasha, over to you. I'm not going to pronounce that one. So I'll let you introduce it. Yes. So we actually we will do a bigger ed tech update, I think next week or something. I'm just going to put that on the calendar now. But we have the new most valuable ed tech company in the world. It is its name is Yuan Fudao. And I looked it up before I said it. So let's hope it's OK. It is now worth 15.5 billion. And it is beat by Jews as the most valuable ed tech company in the world. Think of it as a live learning app doing a lot of special stuff with AI. We can talk about it more next week. Uh, just because I can't help myself here, this was a, an extension of an extension of its Series G. Is that correct? They raised two extension rounds to the same Series G round that they announced at the same time. The first one was led by Tencent. The second okay. one was led by DST Global. And it kind of doubled its valuation since March. What? <laughs> <laughs> I, this Sorry. is so what? confusing. Why does it just make any sense? a new round? Why, why call it a G <laughs> extension too? Like, I, I know this is really trivial of me and I mean petty, but like if its valuation is going up, why? Danny, is there any logical reason for this or, or am I just missing the mark? Uh, this is one of those, like, is it a post seed, a seed extension, a yeah. pre A extension? I don't know. I, I, I think the point here is that it's doubled in valuation and, and particularly... You know, we talk about ed tech, but um, obviously there's a lot of great ed tech companies in the U.S., but globally, you know, you're seeing this fight between India and China 
both have now competing massive edtech unicorns or decacorns and going on to, I don't know, centicorns or whatever the next kind of context is. But there's just so much potential globally in the ed- education market. I mean, everyone's demanding these sorts of services. So, I mean, and Dasha, what do you expect next in this market? I mean, it's going to be a very, very long time before the U.S. catches up. I think a lot of China's success comes from its willingness and access to data on its consumers. And I mean, with UN Fudao, for example, while it comes with its own sort of problems, the access to data, they have created a university that's just dedicated to bringing AI into its app, like a real estate university. And I don't know any way in which U.S. EdTech will catch up with it until it starts working more with public institutions and private institutions. And it's just really frustrating to see us so far behind, but a lot of hope to be found in India and China. Well, and and other news in education as well, New Oriental, which is one of the largest owners of private schools in China, had its Hong Kong debut yesterday on Wednesday, uh, raising $12 billion in its IPO. Excuse me? $12 billion? It raised $12 billion? That might be in Hong Kong dollars. Still. $12 billion Hong Kong dollars, but a huge amount of money. And so again, there's just so much money here. There's an exit market for education tech companies and education companies more broadly. I think is really exciting space to watch. Uh, that's 1.55 billion U.S. dollars if it is in Hong Kong dollars. But still, either way, it's north of a billion dollars raised in an IPO, which is an enormous event that uh, I should have noticed, but I didn't. Can I talk about the Wanderlust Group Series B? I found a local startup to me in Rhode Do Island. Do it. Do yeah, it. Yeah, okay. So uh, there's a town called Wait, Newport. wait, wait, wait. So the, the, because it's a Rhode Island startup, I have to make a point about Wanderlust? I mean, I, I can understand how people in Rhode Island would have that characteristic <laughs> to want to go and explore other places. Are you done? I want to get all the jokes out of the way first. Just take them all. Um, Rhode Island, if you didn't know it, is watery. There's lots of ocean and rivers, and uh, it's a great place to go outdoors. Not a very well-known fact. And the Wanderlust Group is all about that. Based down in Newport, famous for its kind of just natural beauty and kind of being on the ocean, They make software for marinas, and they also own marinas.com, which is an enormous kind of like online classified ads for a marina space. And what they want to do is make kind of vertical SaaS for marina owners. And it's going pretty well for them. They just raised a $14.2 million Series B from a collection of family office money. They had raised $13.1 million previously across a number of small rounds. The way the CEO explained it to me, he was like, look, a lot of us were pretty senior at HubSpot. So we went off to found this. We didn't need to raise $30 million in one go. We could just kind of raise smaller rounds as we went. And they are going to be building versions of their software for the RV market, expanding internationally, and generally just kind of taking SaaS into the outdoor space with a goal of getting more folks outside, which I think after how much time I spent inside in 2020 actually begins to appeal to me. But most importantly, it's based here in Rhode Island and there's not that many startups out here. So it's always fun to get to talk to someone who lives, you know, within a hundred miles of me versus like 3000 miles away. So the Wanderlust Group Series B, it's neat. And I think now we're going to move on to R2C. Yeah, I think the last round here, um, R2C is building tools for developers to make them more productive. So developers already use tools called linters to make their code better, you know, on a line-to-line basis. So are they, you know, having too many spaces? Is there a period misplaced? Is there a semicolon in the right location? R2C wants to get a lot more intelligent using kind of machine learning and a lot of uh, pattern recognition and, and groupings to actually secure software better, make it super easy to find bugs early, and basically make uh, developers more productive, right? So they don't have to find bugs you know, two weeks later, try to figure out where in the code they were, try to fix it. And so it pulled in a great uh, group out of Facebook and out of Palantir and got funding from Satish at, at Redpoint. Jim gets $13 million into its Series A and the two co-led seed check earlier that was unannounced and they didn't really discuss the valuation or the price. But this is actually a really exciting company because we've seen static code analysis tools in the past. It's actually a really productive area of research in computer science. 
Um, and now those tools are sort of filtering down into the real world, into developer environments and code editors. Super excited for them. They're based out of technically nominally San Francisco, but like everyone, <laughs> they're all remote all the time these days. You know, I would have loved this in high school and I was trying to learn how to code C++ and I would always drop semicolons at the end of my lines and break the code, which is why I'm not a developer today. It's why I'm a journalist. <laughs> so maybe if RGC had been around, the world would be very different for me. I think we'd have three times the number of developers if people didn't start with C++. Okay, to be clear, that was not If you're my a C++ lover, lover, you should like totally write us a hate mail. Uh, no, we'll take that. Equitypot oh. at TechCrunch.com. Why C++ <laughs> is better than no. Perl. Okay, but I think we are out of time, guys. We are back Saturday morning for our earnings roundups. So you know all that is going on in Q3 and Q4. We'll see you then. I'm Alex. That's Danny. That's Natasha. We're out of here. 